Not to scare you, but I have 12 pages of notes for next week. But next week's the one that scares me, so we'll see how it goes. We're on part two of our baptism series tonight. And I have, it looks like, a good amount of time to work through it. We'll be out of here no later than 10.45 or so. No, that's actually next week. This week I think we'll be okay. So last week we kicked off our doctrinal series on baptism. We looked at different uses of the word baptism. The word doesn't have a universal meaning in the Bible. And so it's up to us as students of the word to uh, dig into the word of God to see what it means when it's being used. We need to handle it in context. Tonight, we're going to continue. Let me review quickly, though. Last week, we looked at Jewish baptisms, right? Those were Jewish ceremonial washings that were types and shadows pointing to Christ. We looked at the baptism of Jesus and why he was baptized. We looked at the baptism of John the Baptist and his, what I believe is his institution of Christian baptism. And then we looked at another one. We looked at, I should probably write these down if I'm going to review them. We looked at, um, uh, my wife's talking to the kids, I can't get, what was the other one? There's four last week. Jewish baptisms, baptism of Jesus, baptism of John, and. Um, that's tonight. I mentioned, yeah. There was another one last week that I, looked, I mentioned, I don't remember now. It's, I should have written it down. I didn't pay attention to my own message last week. Baptism of oh Moses, Jason should have had that one. That was his question. He really should have been should have had that one. Baptism into Moses, what that meant. And so we looked at that last week. This week we're looking at baptism into Christ, baptism of fire, and baptism of the or for the dead are the ones we're looking at tonight. And we'll spend most of our time over there. But it's so important to know what we believe about baptism. I have a. I wouldn't call him a friend, I'd barely call him a pastor, but somebody I know who just announced this week that he's moving from a credo-baptist position, that's a believer's baptism position, to a paedo-baptism position, which is an infant baptism position. And then we have friends that go to the church who, from the looks of it on their response to his post on Facebook, sounds like they're just following him right into it. And I would call those people, people who were Baptist by tradition. They came out of the Calvary Chapel movement, which is not a very deep movement doctrinally. And they came from there into the Reformed Baptist movement. But they've been Baptists, and they're just Baptists because they're Baptists because they're Baptists. And now their pastor is going to something else. Now they say, okay, well, that's, we'll, we'll believe that. That's what I don't want our church to fall into. We're not, don't be Baptist by tradition. Be Baptist by conviction. For a lot of years, I couldn't tell you why I was a Baptist. Now I can, from the Scripture, tell you why. Uh, if I were going to that church today, I, I would not be going to that church tomorrow. If my pastor came out and announced he's switching positions on baptism. I believe it's unscriptural. I don't, I don't, uh, and, and I, you say, oh, you just haven't been exposed to it. No, I've read books. I, 90% of my street preacher friends are, are Presbyterians. I've heard the arguments. I've had the discussions. I'm not convinced. I think the Bible, I even had one of my Presbyterian friends. We were having a discussion, we were a team leaders retreat for Super Bowl, and the discussion came up, and uh, one of my Presbyterian friends even said, I'll tell you guys what, I'll, I'll admit something, if sola scriptura is our only guide, then the Baptists are right. 
What he's basically, basically teaching is the Bible does teach that. But church tradition teaches something else. Now, what was ironic about that was that night he had preached to us a, a, a message on Sola Scriptura, which I find ironic in the highest degree. But anyways, it's important to know why we believe what we believe. And if you're here tonight and you say, well, I'm an infant baptizer, that, then you're going to hear why we're not. Well, not tonight. We're getting to that in a couple of weeks, but we're kind of laying the foundation tonight. But I want people, I want us to know our doctrine and believe what we believe because we're convinced by Scripture that it's the right thing. Because if that's not your position on anything, you are prime meat for the cults to come along and to snatch you away. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. So we need to be convinced from Scripture of what we believe. So we'll start with baptism into Christ. There are references to being baptized into Christ or into the body of Christ. I believe that this is a baptism that takes place with every believer who gets saved. At salvation, they are baptized into the church or body of Christ, right? Now, this is going to bring up differences between the local church and the universal church, okay? Uh, there's a tendency, especially among Baptists, to deny the existence of the universal church, um, the church I came from. Uh, would say there's no universal church, just the local church. Uh, I find that inconsistent because when he talks to a guy from another church, he still calls him brother. I'm trying to figure out how he's your brother if you're not part of the same. Anyways, we tend to go overboard and we say, oh, that's Catholic. The Catholics believe they're the universal church. And while they do, I don't think we should ever throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't oppose things because Catholics believe them, or else we need to get rid of the Trinity and the cross and the virgin birth, right? We're not going to do that. But I believe the Bible does teach a visible local church and an invisible universal body of Christ, okay? Sometimes we have to sift carefully to distinguish truth and error, but it's the right way to live out our faith. So I believe in the local church. I pastor a local church. And I believe the local church is biblical. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1-2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Okay? Now listen to Colossians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy's our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these were local bodies where people gathered to sing, to pray, to preach, to take the Lord's Supper. It was a local body of believers. But there are also references to the universal or invisible church made up of all believers of all times, okay? While pastors are the local are the leaders of the local visible church, right? If you remember, and I don't have it in my notes, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, am I on the lapel or the, or the mic? This one here? I won't back up too far then. I tend to wander backwards sometimes. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the body, right? In terms of the members of the body. 
And so it mentions the head and the eyes and the mouth and the ears. And I think that's picturing for us the head of the local church. There's, a, there's, a, there's, there's leadership in the local church. But there's other places where it speaks of Christ as the head of the church. And it's speaking of the universal body of believers, okay? Uh, we get one of those in uh, Colossians chapter uh, 118. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, when it's talking about the body and the members of the body, it talks about, are all this, are all that, are all the head, are all the feet? Right? So... People make up those parts of the body. That's the local church. But Christ is over the church. Go to Hebrews 12. We'll start there. Hebrews 12. Some references I'll probably have you turn to. Some I'll read because of time. But if you, if you feel better, I'm already on page 2 of 12. So, all right. Hebrews 12, 22. I'll give you two more passages to talk about the universal church. Hebrews 12, 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We have there the entire body of Christ, both on earth and in heaven, mentioned in the same place. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15. Ephesians 3.15. It says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, if your point of view is there's no, there's no universal body, we're not interconnected in any spiritual way, all there is is each individual local church, you have a problem here. Because you have one family, some in heaven, some on earth. But the whole family. Not just... This isn't the whole family, just you guys know. Look around. This isn't the whole family. This is a handful of the family. There are more Christians on earth than we have here today. Yes. Okay? Abraham, Paul, Polycarp, Augustine, Calvin, Tenboom, you and me, we're all part of one family, one body. Some of them are in heaven. Some of us are here. But there's one church, one body. Notice in Ephesians 3, it says the whole family in heaven and earth. We do not exist separate from those who've gone before us. And we don't exist separate from those here on earth today. Those who are saved, you know people are saved in other churches, right? Yeah. I mean, Brother Paul goes to another church. I don't know if he's saved, but somebody there is saved. Just kidding, brother. Or look, go down the road here, all the different churches in the area. There are saved people, and they're part of one body, one church with us. Even though we're part of different local churches, we're still spiritually brothers and sisters. We're still spiritually connected. When we are saved, we are baptized into Christ's body, both local and universal. The one is invisible, the other is visible in water. Go to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to show you both of them in Scripture. Romans chapter 6. 
verse 3. Romans 6, 3. Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Okay? I believe this is a reference to water baptism. Our baptism in water pictures his burial and his resurrection. We are raised from those waters to walk in new life. In other words, we are, we are, we are picturing the casting off of our old life in death and rising to walk in new life. Not that the water saves us, but the picture coming out of the water is the picture of his resurrected life. Okay? So get the context here. Look back at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the context is not going on in sin in light of our baptism into Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, don't you remember when you were baptized? You publicly identified with Christ, with his death, his burial, his resurrection? Why are you going on in those sins that you have publicly renounced to be identified with Christ? You rose to walk in new life. How can you go on in sin? That's the context he's giving us here. Baptism is identification with Christ. Just as the Israelites were baptized into Moses, we are publicly identified with Christ at our baptism and publicly renounce our sin and walk in new life. So when a person is saved and they come to a local church, the next step they do is to get baptized. And they're identifying typically with that local church. It would be weird to run to Brother Paul's church to get baptized and then go out into another church and start attending somewhere else. Typically, when you get baptized in a church, you're identifying with that. You're becoming part of that body. You're joining with that body. That's the, that's the visible church. We're baptized into Christ's visible body here on earth. Okay? So keep that in mind. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26. Galatians 3.26, the Bible says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't believe the context here is water baptism. This baptism into Christ is, I believe, into the universal body of believers. We are children of God by faith and baptized into him here as one continuous thought. Right? For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are children of God by faith and baptized into him all at one time. In this baptism and faith, there is neither Jew nor Greek and so on and so forth. Now, if we do, if we're applying this to water baptism, we have a problem, right? Because if uh, if I baptize Reuben and I baptize my wife, he comes up a man and she comes up a woman, right? Nothing changes. Here it says there is no male or female, oh, okay. right? 
Uh, Onesimus, when he went back to Philemon, was still a slave. Though he was being treated like a brother, he was still a slave. What it's talking about here is the spiritual baptism into Christ's universal body, which, which knows no distinction between gender or position in society or wealth or anything else. That's what it's talking about in that context. So the context in Romans 6 is, to me, clearly water baptism. You have identified with Christ. You have given up your old ways. You have walk, come up to walk a new life. Why are you going on in sin in light of your public taking of Christ? And over here, we have faith. We're made part of Christ, regardless of male or female, bond or free. Uh, what's the other things in the list there? Greek or Jew. We are all become part of, so there was equality within the church in regards to salvation. There's no lesser or greater Christians. We're just Christians. The slave could be saved as equally as the master. And both had access to God. The master was not above the slave in the church in terms of access to God. They were on the same level. So I believe the context here is the universal church. We are children of God by faith, and as a result, we are baptized into or united to Christ. This is done through the operation of the Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 12 and 13. For as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now, this is obviously spiritual baptism into Christ, not water baptism. We know that. Why? Because Paul wasn't baptized by the church of Corinth. He was baptized on the road to Damascus by, I think it was by Ananias. So he says, we've been baptized into one body. He's not talking about the local church there. He's talking about the universal body of Christ. And again, whether there's not bond or free, whether there's a Jew or Gentile, and so on and so forth. This passage is often mistakenly used to teach spirit baptism. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. But that's not consistent with the context. We are all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. This baptism is done by the Spirit, Paul says, here in the text, right? Not into the Spirit. Into Christ, by the Spirit. But as we'll see here in a minute, Luke, when he prophesied the baptism of the Spirit, he said, you'll be baptized by Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So it's not the same, it can't be the same baptism. Because Luke said, you'll be baptized, Christ will baptize you with the Spirit. Over here, the Spirit's baptizing us into Christ. Two different baptisms going on here. We need to understand that. I lost myself in my, note, in my notes here. Um, if we're going to make this Spirit baptism, then we have a Trinity problem, don't we? Think about that. We're not modalists. We don't believe in one God, one person of God, who shows himself in three different forms, do we? We believe in one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. So the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. If there's a spirit baptism here, we have a problem. Because in the Gospels, Luke says, Christ will baptize you with the Spirit. And here we see the Spirit baptizing. It's conflating the members of the Godhead. So if this is spirit baptism, you're denying the Trinity. That's a dangerous place to be. We've got to be careful with that, okay? So it's again a reference to the universal church. One body. We all drink of one spirit. This is what unites all believers of all time, being baptized into that one body. Paul is telling the Corinthians, even though I was saved years ago in a different place, we are all in one body. We've all been baptized. We all drink the same spiritual drink. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 5. The Bible says there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. That one baptism we all share is the Spirit baptizing us into the universal body of Christ. There's one body and one Spirit. Now, my friends who would deny the universal church, they kind of do a little gymnastics there in their, in their minds. and they, There's one body, and that's being spoken to this church. We're the one body. And he's speaking to that church. Mystically, they're the one body. And that's not, that's not even reasonable. Way to interpret scripture. There are many, many visible local body of Christ manifested in the world today. But there's one body. There's one. We are all united by one spiritual bond. When I meet a Christian from another church, I can call them brother or sister rightly because we share in one spirit. We are united to Christ together. Though we don't know each other, though we are from different backgrounds or maybe even different denominations. We all share in one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that is spiritual baptism. So we're baptized upon conversion by the Spirit into Christ's body. There is one body of Christ universally, and we share one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, whether in heaven or on earth. Understand that. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I used to have a guy I knew, and the way he, the way he said things, he referred to somebody in the past, and he always, you know, would be Sister Corey Tinboom, Brother Polycarp, and he was martyred. I love that because even though they're dead, they're alive spiritually in heaven, and we all have are part of one body. We're all united, and one day the entire church. From, from Abel to the last person saved will stand before the throne of God, one body in Christ, united by faith. Whether we're in Africa or North America, we're one big family. Baptism to Christ's body, meaning the visible church, is done through the visible act of baptism, water baptism. Baptism to Christ's body, meaning the invisible universal church, is done by the Spirit at the time of our salvation. So when the Bible refers to baptism into Christ, I believe there's two different applications of that baptism, one visible and one invisible.
So let's move on to the baptism of fire. This is a hot one. Luke chapter 3. You like that pun? It's a hot one. Anyways, that's a terrible joke. No one laughed. I feel bad about myself now. I feel bad for having made the joke now. <laughs> when you make a joke and it doesn't land, you feel guilty. But like, you feel bad about yourself. Like, I'm just going to go the bathroom there and punch myself in the face a few times. Baptism of fire. So let's start in Luke where John says Christ will baptize him with the Holy Ghost and fire. We're going to take the fire part because the other part is a, a much longer discussion I don't want to do tonight. So Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered and saying, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Uh, there's been debate over what the baptism of fire meant. Some apply it to Pentecost. I know, I've known Pentecostals who uh, will run around the room and get out of breath and jump into the baptistry and call it the, the baptism of fire. It's not what it is. Uh, it's not losing control of ourselves. It's not rolling around on the floor. That's not what he's talking about here. I don't find the Pentecost, uh, you know, they say that because of the tongues of fire in Luke two, or Acts 2. That's why they say that. But I don't find that very compelling. That experience was the pouring out of the Holy Ghost, right? Yes. But saying the baptism would be the Holy Ghost and fire signifies two separate events. It's as if he's talking about two groups. I'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire, depending on which group you're in. I believe he's saying that depending on their response to the preaching, they would be baptized with the Holy Ghost or with fire. Look at verse 17. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of fire purged false professors from true possessors of Christ. Based on their response, they would either be gathered as wheat or burned as chaff. Think about that. Christ came to the nation of Israel. Some responded. Some believed. And what are they? They're the wheat. He gathers into his garner. Some rejected him. Some refused they were facing the baptism of fire. Same thing today. As you preach the gospel, people respond and they get saved. They're wheat. Some do not. And they're facing pending judgment of fire. There's some in the church who are false professors of Christ. They're the chaff, right? That'll be burned away. Now there's a parallel to this thought in John 15, verse 6. Go ahead and turn there. That's the uh, parable of the vine and the branches. John 15, verse 6. I'm doing excellent on time, but I shouldn't get prideful because I messed up my songs too many times. The Bible says, If any man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And there we have the same dynamic. Those who are not saved are burned with fire. Those who abide in the vine, those are true believers in Christ. Um... The best way to interpret the Bible is always with the Bible, right? You want to know what the baptism of fire looks like? Look at, look at John 15. 
they would either receive the Holy Spirit or they would be judged. That's what he's saying. In fact, when you put those two verses together, I should have done that in my notes. Back in Luke chapter 3, go ahead and go back there real quick. Luke chapter 3, one more time. Look at those two verses side by side. It flows from the context of the passage. Luke 3, 16. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, that's the Messiah, Christ, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They would receive the Holy Ghost to be gathered, or they would be burned. Same thing we see in John chapter 15. And we know, of course, that Jesus was, by and large, rejected by the nation of Israel. And what happened? He burned their city with fire, didn't he? He destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The last one we're going to look at, and we'll probably give the most time to, is baptism for the dead. This is the controversial one. And my interpretation is not a common one. But I believe it's biblical. Believe it or not, the Bible does mention baptism for the dead. That surprises a lot of people. I remember when I was a teenager. That's why you need to know your doctrine. Because I was a teenager who didn't know doctrine. Um, now, I wasn't truly saved. That's probably part of the problem. But also, I went to a church that was just fluff. Just fluff all the time. I mean, the youth group was just fluff. That's all it was. We're looking one today on Facebook, some friends of ours who are, I guess, youth group leaders in the church. And they're having a service tonight for the youth. And the topic they're covering is how to stand out in a crowd. I've done my wife. That's the same nonsense I heard in youth group growing up. Not how to love Jesus or hate sin. Not why we believe the things we believe in church, but how to stand out in a crowd. It was one couple weeks ago I saw from some youth leaders who posted that come to church tonight, kids, or teenagers. We're going to talk about how to feel good about yourself. I thought, well, that'll come in great on Judgment Day, won't it? I mean, they may go to hell, but at least they feel good about themselves on the way there. That's the nonsense I grew up in. So I first encountered a Mormon when I was going door to door with my church. He brought that up. I'm like, the Bible doesn't say that. And he showed me the verse. I was like, oh, it does. I didn't know that. I don't want you to be in that same situation. The Bible does mention baptism for the dead. But the Mormons abuse it. That's what I want to show you tonight. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. After this, if you're planning on getting baptized for a dead person, I think you'll probably change your mind. I hope. First Corinthians 15, 29. This one mysterious verse is mentioned one time in the Bible. Paul says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? What does Paul mean? It's a very mysterious verse, and no explanation is given by Paul. We know the original hearers of the letter would know what he was talking about, but for us, we have to work harder at it. The Mormons use this to defend their doctrine of being baptized for the dead. It's important to understand what they believe. So we need to go back 
and see their view of baptism and then get into their baptism for the day. So what I've done, what any good Baptist pastor should do tonight is I brought you Mormon doctrine. Because I want you to understand what the Mormons believe. And here's one thing you're going to learn about me when when I talk about other religions. I think it's so important, church, that we rightly understand what they believe. Right? Uh, it's not a Christian thing to lie or slander people. Know what they accurately portray cults. Don't lie. Because if they catch you misquoting what they believe, they're not going to listen to you anymore. We have got to be brutally honest people. I mentioned before, I was out one time going door to door with a young man. Turns out he's not saved. but He... Uh, all he knew of the Roman Catholics was they believe in work salvation. Now, if you ever talk to a Roman Catholic, they'll deny that. Because they don't see it as work salvation. They see it as a grace salvation. It's just instead of being declared righteous before God by grace, they believe that you get infusions of grace. So you get baptized, you live with grace. You add on to that by doing this and by doing that, and more grace and more grace and more grace. So you talk to a typical Roman Catholic and say, you believe in work salvation? They're going to, no, I don't. So we were at this house, and this guy came, was talking at the door, and he's, you know, well, what church do you go to? And he mentioned some Catholic church. He goes, oh, well, you guys believe in salvation by works, not by faith, and, and, or not by grace. And so can I show you why that's wrong? And the guy's really confused. He goes, no, we don't. We believe in salvation by grace. And the guy who's with him goes, no, you don't. And I said, yes, yes, we do. You know, you know where this is going, right? No, you don't. Yes, we do. No, you don't. Yes, we do. No, you don't. Finally, they get off my porch. And I pulled this afterwards. I said, they don't understand that it's work salvation. They think it's grace. You just have to help God out with it, cooperate with it. But now he'll never listen to you. Because he thinks, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's all wrong about us. So when you, when you look at what other people believe, look at original sources. Look at their sources and find out what they teach. Don't listen to what some teacher taught about what they, what they believe. Because that'll mess you up. You ever play telephone? The story changes as it goes down the line. Right? So you're probably hearing it from a preacher who, who heard it from a preacher, who heard it from a preacher, who heard it from a preacher, who looked it up himself. That's dangerous. Don't do that. Be respectful and know what they believe. Because you know what? They're wrong. And we can oppose them in truth on the grounds of Scripture. So, that being said, I got these quotes from the Latter-day Saint website. What do the Mormons believe about baptism? It's very important. Quote, Baptism by immersion in water, by one having authority, is the first saving ordinance of the gospel and is necessary for an individual to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to receive eternal salvation. So they believe that baptism brings salvation. All who seek eternal life must follow the example of the Savior by being baptized and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those who keep the covenants they made at baptism are blessed by the Lord for their faithfulness. Some of the blessings include the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, the remission of sins, and the privilege of being spiritually reborn. If they continue faithfully, then they are promised eternal life. From Latter-day Revelation, now that is what Joseph Smith received, right? Not from the Bible. 
From Latter-day Revelation, we know that little children are redeemed through the mercy of Jesus Christ. The Lord said they cannot sin, for, their, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children. He has never met a child. I'm convinced of that. My kids are demons. And I love them to death. Kids can't sin. You never convince me. I have kids. You never convinced me of that. Anyways. They cannot sin, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children until they begin to become accountable before me. That's Doctrine, of Covenant, Doctrine and Covenants 29, 46-47. They are not to be baptized until they reach the age of accountability, which the Lord has revealed to be eight years of age. Doctrine, of Covenant, Doctrine and Covenants 68, 27. And by the way, Doctrine and Covenants, Book of Mormon, are books they see as being equal with the Bible and superior in some ways because they are Latter-day Revelations. Right? So the church went wonky after Christ, and then it was restored unto Joseph Smith, and he gave Latter-day Revelations to straighten out false doctrine. Those are in the Doctrine of Covenant, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon, and the Pearl of Great Price, I believe, as well as the other one that they use. So with that established, why are they baptized for the dead? Okay, so they believe that baptism brings salvation. We have to understand that. Now let's look at this. Again, my info comes from their own website. Many people, however, have died without being baptized. Others were baptized without proper authority. Because God is merciful, he has prepared a way for all people to receive the blessing of baptism. By performing proxy baptisms on behalf of those who have died, church members offer these blessings to deceased ancestors. Individuals can then choose to accept or reject what has been done on their behalf. Now, that's very important. Because what I was taught when I was younger was Mormons believe that you get baptized and someone gets saved that, that lived before. That's not what they believe. They believe that those who died not hearing the gospel or not hearing Mormon doctrine, they don't go to heaven or hell, they go to a spirit prison where when somebody on earth is baptized for them, then they are offered that baptism, which they can accept and go to heaven or reject and go to hell. All right, that's what they believe. So it doesn't secure salvation, it offers salvation to the dead. Okay? We go on with this quote here. Many people have lived on the earth who never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who were not baptized. Others lived without fully understanding the importance of the ordinance of baptism. Still others were baptized, but without proper authority, meaning not a Mormon baptism. Because he is a loving God, the Lord does not damn those people who, through no fault of their own, never had the opportunity to be for baptism. He has therefore authorized baptisms to be performed by proxy for them. A living person, often a descendant of someone, or a descendant who has become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is baptized in behalf of a deceased person. Excuse me. This work is done by church members in temples throughout the world. Some people have misunderstood that when baptisms baptisms for the dead are performed, deceased persons are baptized into the church against their will. This is not the case. Each individual has, has agency or the right to choose. The validity of a baptism for the dead depends on the deceased person accepting it and choosing to accept and follow the Savior while residing in the spirit world. The names of deceased persons are not added to church membership records of the church, again, because they can't verify whether they accepted it or rejected it. Okay. Now, how do they come to this doctrine? How did this come about? Let me go on from their website. Revelations to Joseph Smith reaffirmed the necessity of baptism for salvation and taught that this ordinance needed to be performed with restored priesthood authority. 
Church members, including Joseph and his family, were anxious to know the status of their family members who had died without baptism. They pondered New Testament passages about Jesus Christ preaching to spirits in prison. On August 15, 1840, Joseph Smith preached a sermon at the funeral of church member Seymour Brunson. Noticing a woman in attendance who had lost her son before he could be baptized, Joseph revealed that the saints could now act for their friends who had departed this life by being baptized on their behalf. In other words, he just made it up. That's, that's where it came from. He just made it up. He cited the ancient apostle Paul's teachings regarding baptism for the dead and encouraged the saints to rejoice. The saints received word of this practice with enthusiasm and began to perform baptisms in nearby rivers and streams on behalf of relatives, friends, and prominent people. In January 1841, Joseph Smith received a revelation that baptisms for the dead were intended to be performed in temples. Reflecting revelation he had received, Joseph Smith taught in a letter to the church in 1842 that baptisms for the dead should be carefully documented, promising that what the saints record on earth will be recorded in heaven. Do you see how they use biblical language out of context? Always beware of that. It can sound biblical, but it's not. Accordingly, clerks were called to ensure that all baptisms of the dead were recorded. New technologies, greater organization, and increasing emphasis on regular temple attendance led to greater participation in baptisms for the dead in the 20th century. In addition to performing baptisms for deceased relatives, Latter-day Saints began to perform this ordinance for others whose genealogical information they had extracted from available records. End quote. I worked for quite a few months, security, years ago, at a library. You know who worked in the genealogy department? All Mormons. All Mormons. You know what they were doing in there? Taking down names of people who were dead in order for people to be baptized on their behalf to offer them salvation. In 2001, a Mormon billionaire, James Sorensen, started Relative Genetics. It was later bought by Ancestry.com, another Mormon-owned company. While today Ancestry is a publicly traded company, it uses LDS church records. You ever done that thing where you take your DNA sample and you send it in to find out what's in your DNA? Those are Mormon companies who do it for the purpose of looking up people to be baptized for. This is all very important in light of the topic tonight, so let's get back to the scriptures. We see Paul mentioned baptism for the dead in our text of 1 Corinthians 15. Just for review of what we saw earlier, Mormons believe a living person can be baptized on behalf of a dead person. They believe you must be baptized by the Mormon church to go to heaven, so they teach that Mormonism or Mormons can get a proxy baptism for someone who has lived before. They believe these souls in spirit prison have a chance to accept or reject the baptism. Those who lived never hearing the message can be awarded salvation through someone being baptized in their name. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 128. Since this concept is absent from Scripture, I don't think Paul had this in mind. He did have something in mind, though. So what did he have in mind? Well, let's look at the Scriptures and understand it. One explanation, and probably the most common one you've probably heard if you've heard this passage preached on before, is the ancient pagans believed in baptizing for the dead. And so Paul was simply pointing to the ancient pagan practice, saying, see, see, the dead do rise from the dead. I mean, look, at even the pagans believe that and get baptized for the dead. Very common. 
Uh, so that's actually the only explanation I've ever heard growing up. But I reject it. I don't think Paul is going to point to pagan worship as a way to justify biblical doctrine. He does quote pagan poets in his sermons, but that's far different. That's far different than justifying doctrine by wicked worship. I don't think Paul's going to do that. To arrive at this interpretation, you have to take the verse out of the chapter, isolate it, and then read into it an explanation like the pagan thing. The interpretation I'm going to give you tonight will keep it in the chapter and interpret it within the context of the chapter and then confirm that interpretation by bringing in other passages because you should always interpret the Bible with the Bible. So what's the alternative? I believe the baptism here for the dead can rightly be called the baptism of suffering. So let's interpret Scripture with Scripture to make a case for what I'm saying, okay? Uh, turn to something. Matthew 20. Matthew 20. On at least two occasions, Jesus referred to his suffering on the cross as a baptism. I want you to see that. Matthew 20, verse 20. The Bible says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him, and desiring a cer certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what you ask. Are, sorry. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, you shall, you shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it should be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Okay? In this passage, Jesus not only refers to his sufferings as baptism, but tells his disciples that they will be baptized with the same baptism that he is baptized with. Okay? We'll come back to that in a moment. Luke 12. Go there. Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 50. Jesus is speaking here again. It says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Here again, Jesus refers to his suffering as a baptism. And what an accurate picture it is, right? He was immersed in his suffering. He was immersed in our sins and the punishment for our sins. Now, returning to his mention of his disciples being baptized with the same baptism, let's look at what Paul says. Uh, Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24. Bible says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. What is Paul saying here? Uh, let me tell you what he's not saying. If you take all of Paul's teaching throughout the New Testament and put it together, he is not saying the sacrifice of Christ is lacking anything, okay, in terms of redemption. He's not saying that we can add to our salvation, right? People all over the world, what do they do? They deprive themselves. They hurt themselves. They try to make themselves suffer to earn forgiveness. That's not what Paul is saying. 
He's not saying that the sacrifice of Christ needs to be repeated and demonstrated daily for sins like we see in the Roman Mass. When Christ uttered those words on the cross, it is finished, John 19.30, he meant it. It's finished. When the writer of Hebrews said that Christ in his offering perfected for all time those being sanctified, Hebrews 10.14, he meant it. Christ cannot be here today to demonstrate his love for the world by sacrifice. So Paul is saying to those he's witnessing to that the sacrifice that he's doing is to bring them the gospel. He's bearing in his body the sufferings and marks of the Lord Jesus. In other words, when he says he's filling up with the afflictions of Christ, what he's saying is not that Christ's suffering lacked anything, but rather that Christ can't be here to put out his arms on the cross and suffer for you visibly, he's in heaven, so we are suffering in his place to demonstrate the love of God in the gospel to you. That's what he's saying. Or he's being baptized with the same baptism Christ was, suffering physical pain and affliction to bring the love of God to sinners. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Verse 17, Paul says, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did he literally have nail wounds in his hands and his feet and his side like Christ did? No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, as Christ's body bore marks and wounds for the love of the gospel, so Paul was bearing in his body scars and wounds from bringing the love of God to people. Verse 14, that same chapter, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Was Paul ever crucified? No. No, but it's as if he was. In other words, he's saying, I am being publicly beaten, ridiculed, scorned, physically abused like Christ was on the cross. I'm crucified. I'm displaying the, the sufferings of Christ to the world. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul was suffering physical violence, wrongful accusations, and courts, just as Jesus did. It's the same message he gives in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What he's saying there is, he says, we're, we're, we're beseeching you in Christ's stead, right? So Christ is on his throne in heaven. He can't be here right now to talk to you. So we're standing in his place, in his stead, saying what he would say to you if he was right here, be ye reconciled to God, right? In the same way, Paul and the other disciples were suffering violence to fill up what was lacking in Christ's suffering. In other words, Christ couldn't be there to suffer because of his place in heaven. So the apostles were now suffering physically for the sake of the gospel to demonstrate the love of God to sinners, it's the same message he gave in Romans 8.36, where again, he compares the sufferings of the apostles to the sufferings of Christ. He said, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So move back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. When I say the baptism of suffering, that's what I'm talking about. Christ said they would be baptized with the baptism he was baptized with, which was suffering for the sake of of the gospel. I'm going to show you in the context of the chapter that's exactly what he's talking about. 
forget some water. So when Paul talks about baptism in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, he's not talking about water baptism, okay? And the dead he's referring to is Christ himself, not dead loved ones in the past. Follow the context to better understand this. There have been teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead in the church of Corinth. Now, they still accepted that Christ rose from the dead, and Paul is going to show them what hypocrites they're being. Right? But they're saying, oh, there's no future resurrection. He's going to counter that in his, in his argument here. He starts with emphasizing the necessity of the resurrection in the gospel. Look at verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the, good, the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So he said then, it's foundational to the gospel. Christ rose from the dead. The gospel is not just that he died, but that he rose again. He then goes on to say, or to remind them, that they are witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 5. And then he was seen as Cephas, then of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. The gospel is that Christ rose from the dead, and we can prove this by all the witnesses, including myself. Talk to them. Some have fallen asleep, but many are still here. This is what we preached to you, and this is what you believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached and he rose that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's making the case that they are denying the resurrection of the dead, and yet the entire gospel stands on this cornerstone. Now Paul is going to take to make Christ's resurrection the foundation of his rebuttal to their false teaching. Verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Boom, right there. You want to hold on to the resurrection of Christ, but not of the future resurrection. You're hypocrites. The gospel is predicated on a resurrected man. If there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised either. You know why? Because while he was God, he also is a man. You can't have it both ways, he's saying. If there's no resurrection, then Christ did not rise. And that brings more problems with it. Verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. So he's stringing together a solid apologetic here. If there's no resurrection, then Christ himself is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Verse 15. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. We're liars, we're false witnesses, because we're preaching the resurrection of Christ. Verse 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Again, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is still dead. 
Verse 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. If Christ is not raised and your faith is vain, you're still in your sins. You have no hope. You cannot reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ and be a Christian. You can't. If he didn't rise, he didn't rise for one reason. He's a sinner. The wages of sin is death. If he rose from the dead, it's evidence he wasn't a sinner and death had no claim to hold him. Verse, verse 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Those who have died believing in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them, he says. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. This is quite often a forgotten passage in our attempt at false piety, isn't it? You ever heard people say, I've heard it, oh, so many times from preachers and family members. Even if I knew the Christian life wasn't, if the Bible wasn't true and the Christian life was false, I'd still live the Christian life because this is the best life to live. Then you disagree with the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who says, if this is not true, we're of all men most miserable. No. Listen, if it's not true, then leave here tonight and go live your best life. Scratch and claw to get ahead. Party it up, because this is all we have. We're laying down our lives in this world because we believe in another world to come. And if there's no world to come, we're miserable because we've wasted our lives. Let's do away with the false piety. I'd live the Christian life even if it wasn't true. I wouldn't. I'll be honest with you. I live it for one reason. It's true. And I believe it. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't be standing here right now. I'll, be, I'll tell you that honestly. Now Paul's going to go into the positive argument. Christ did rise from the dead because there is a resurrection of the dead. Let's go on, and I believe it's verse 20 there. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. That's, that's talking about Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ in his coming. Then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when, he, when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Then we come to the controversial verse in question, verse 29. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? So if we take verse 28 and 29 together, we have this really good, consistent line of reasoning. Look at that. And when all things shall be subdued unto him... And then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? The dead rise not at all. Why are they then baptized for the dead? He goes from the victory of the resurrected Christ to else. Or you could say it this way, otherwise. Right? Christ is risen and victorious and putting all things under his feet. Otherwise, why are they being baptized for a dead guy? Why are they suffering? for a dead guy who's not going to get victory at all. That's the line of reasoning there. That's all that makes sense in interpreting this passage. 
It's as if in the language that the baptizing for the dead has something to do with the victory of Christ over his enemies. Right? Now back to the baptism for the dead. Who is the subject of the word dead the entire chapter? It's Christ. If Christ be not risen. If Christ is still dead. Right? That's what it's talking about. Christ is risen from the dead. If the dead rise not, Christ is still dead. If Christ is dead, we are false witnesses. If Christ is not raised, our faith is vain. And so on and so forth. Verse 29 is not speaking of a pagan practice or a dead family member. The apostles were suffering for the cause of Christ, and if Christ is still dead, why are they suffering? That's the argument Paul's making. He is resurrected, he's risen from the dead, he is subduing all things under his feet, that he may be all in all. Otherwise, why are we doing all of this if he's still dead? It means nothing if he's still dead. Why be baptized with the suffering he was baptized with if he didn't rise from the dead in the first place. That's foolish. The reason we accept suffering in this life is the hope of future resurrection. The next verse supports this interpretation, by the way, verse 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Why are we doing that if Christ is still dead? If he's not victorious? Why would I be baptized with his baptism of suffering when he didn't even rise from the dead after it? No, it's the very fact that he did rise from the dead is why they were willing to accept that baptism. It's the reason missionaries today accept that baptism. It's the reason we suffer for Christ right now, because we know we'll be raised immortal with him in glory. In other words, verse 30, why are we risking our lives if Christ is still dead? Look at verse 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die again. The context there is Christ. What advantage is it to us to fight with beasts at Ephesus if Christ is not risen? Listen, the resurrection of Christ really empowered the apostles, didn't it? I mean, they're like, Chickens with their head cut off. Man. They're hiding in a, behind a closed door, afraid of the chief priests. And then Christ appears to them, resurrected. And a couple of days later, you see Peter out there at Pentecost pointing the finger going, you killed him and you knew who he was. How dare you? That could have got them killed. He didn't care anymore. You know why? Because Christ rose from the dead. So if Christ rose from the dead, they can't hurt him. The worst they can do is kill him, and Christ just raised him back up again. It brought great power, great courage. And so all the apostles suffered for Christ. They were baptized with a baptism that he was baptized with. And it means nothing. There's no advantage, he says, if the dead Christ didn't rise. He's the subject of the entire chapter. There's no point to this life if Christ is still dead. Just live for today and enjoy life if that's the case. We don't do that because Christ did rise from the dead. Again, stay close to the text and interpret in context and interpret Scripture with Scripture. In the rest of that chapter, he goes on to explain the dead do rise based on Christ's resurrected body. The dead person throughout the chapter is Christ. Why live for and suffer for Christ if he did not rise from the dead? And his not rising is the logical conclusion of there being no resurrection. Therefore, you're all in error, he says. Paul's conclusion, verse 58. Therefore, in light of all this, my beloved brethren, 
Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know why? Because Christ did rise from the dead. So he's telling them, suffer, serve, lay down your life. It's not in vain. Because Christ rose, we shall rise also. I assure you, I believe that explanation of that verse is the most thoroughly biblical one I can give. In light of the context of the chapter, in light of the, what Jesus said in the Gospels, what Paul said in his writings, it's not dead loved ones. But they were being, it's Christ. It's Christ. And why am, I, why am I up here preaching if he didn't rise from the dead? But he did. So takeaways tonight, and they're in your handout you got with the, for the song list on there. Bring you away the other handouts as well with all the scripture verses uh, at the end here. Takeaways. The Spirit baptizes us spiritually into the body of Christ. Takeaway number one. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit of God baptized you into the universal church, the body of Christ. You became one with Christ's body. Number two. Water baptism is public identification with Christ baptizing us into the visible local church. Number three, baptism of the dead is nowhere taught in Scripture. And number four, we are baptized with the baptism of suffering for a resurrected Christ, not a dead one. We share in his sufferings, and we will share in his glory and his resurrection. That's hopefully give you a good basis if you run into a Mormon to say, you're wrong. Here's the context. Here's what the Bible's teaching. And it hopefully encourages you as you suffer for Christ in this life. Be encouraged. Christ did rise from the dead. So it's not wasted suffering. No suffering in this life is wasted. Nothing is wasted because Christ rose from the dead. Any questions before we end? Any comments, thoughts, criticisms? I cry. Just be nice. No? Sky, you got something good? That's a great topic. We'll discuss that one at home. That's a deeper answer. But the simple answer is because he was without sin. Actually, let's do it here. Let's do it here in church. He was without sin. We die because we're sinners. We die because we do things that don't please God. But Jesus never did that. So, although his physical body did die, he had the power to take it right back up whenever he wanted to because death couldn't hold him he never did anything wrong. That's how he rose from the dead. Because he's God. He's without sin. He's perfect. So he lived the, the perfect life that you and I couldn't live in our place. And when, at the end of time, when we rise from the dead from our graves, we're rising from the dead because of his resurrection. He paid for our sins. He took our sins away. So technically, we are holy without sin in Christ. And so when he commands us to, we will just come out of the graves. Oh. And yeah, that's an insightful question for a little girl. Yes, Ruben. Right. 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 
that's where they go on. That's where they go on their missions. The Mormons they have to go on their missions in order to be able to get their own planet, become a god one day, and that's all tied to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, well, they believe there are multiple gods, unknown, uh, unlimited number of gods, and uh, typically when you hit them with that verse in the Old Testament that says, "I am God, I know of no other," they just say, "Have a nice day. We're done here." They don't know what to say. That's what they believe. Yeah. It's a, it's a thoroughly unbiblical religion, that's for sure. Anything else before we close? All right, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together tonight, for their patience with this very detailed message. Uh, Lord, there's a lot of verses, but a lot to remember, but it's so important that we study the Word of God and get out of it just every truth that we can to understand it as best we can, to know you through it. I'm convinced, Lord, that we need to know our doctrine. We need to know what, what we believe and why we believe it. And we need to stand on the solid footing of the Scriptures. Thank you for your goodness to us tonight, Lord, and your blessings to us. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you leave, my kids are going to give out the handouts with all the... Uh,